Equity is our labor of love. From humble beginnings in the back corner of our old office at 410 Townsend to the remote work world of today, for the past four years, Equity has been TechCrunch's flagship podcast for news on early stage rounds, seed stage startups, what's up with the biggest unicorns, and of course, the hottest IPOs. We've talked to dozens of VCs, recorded hundreds of episodes, and covered the biggest stories in the world of startups and venture capital, all so that you can stay informed. Now, we get asked all the time, how can people support the show? Well, the best thing you can do is to subscribe to Extra Crunch. If you do, you'll support Equity and you'll get access to things like our best reporting, the Extra Crunch live series, deep dives into sectors, investor surveys, and of course, my daily column, The Exchange. You can sign up at techcrunch.com slash subscribe and use the discount code equity. We appreciate you and your support of the show all these years. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm and I am joined, as I am every week, by two of my favorite people on the entire planet. I have Danny Crichton here. Danny, how are you? I'm doing all right, Alex. How are you doing? You know, I'm holding up. It's almost the end of the week. We're going to get through this. And we also have Natasha with us. Tosh, how are you doing? I'm okay. Everyone told me if I lost Twitter, I would be calmer. And I'm not calmer. I am more stressed than ever because I can't tweet. So I'm, I'm a medium. Yeah, yeah. So what's really funny about today's episode is out of the three of us, I'm the only person with a functioning Twitter account. And if that's not karma, I, I really don't know what is. But Danny, Tosh, why, why are you guys still in Twitter purgatory after the rest of us kind of hashtag blue check marks got back in? <laughs> well, for me, at least, and I think Danny, too, I saw the attack or hack that was happening on Twitter. I chose to change my password out of precaution. Sure. And then Twitter, as it should thought that that was suspicious that I was changing my password the day of a hack. So they kicked me out and now I can't get back in. And yeah, it's really sad. It's, it's funny because you're not the only people that I know who are currently in the exact same situation because they did the same thing. And so I, I, here's to Twitter getting its uh, stuff back together soon so we can all get back on Twitter. But I will say it did feel good to have like an old fashioned 2010 Twitter product led meltdown. Like it felt like a throwback to the old days when Twitter used to break all the time. I thoroughly enjoyed myself during the, um, what should we call it? Like the, the Twitter quarantine? I don't know. One of the tweets I saw was like, when the verified stopped tweeting, I had gotten verified, I think like two weeks ago. So I was just trying to keep super cool and like not let anyone notice me. Cause I was like, I just got this. I don't right. want, I, I really resonate with everyone who's not verified, who has been waiting that long. Let, let it, let it be their time. To yeah. Tweet. It was, it was the moment for the Twitter proletariat to mock the Twitter bourgeoisie and uh, Tosh, welcome to the, uh, Welcome to the latter category. Well, I, let, let me tell you, I thought it was going to be a lot better. I thought it was ad-free. I thought that was like the entire point of getting the blue checkbox was you get an ad-free experience. And imagine my disappointment when I actually think I got more ads after I got a blue checkbox than before. <laughs> there was a time period when if you were verified, which is what that means, you didn't get ads. And I recall the first time I got ads, I was like scandalized. I was like, who has been using Twitter like this for all this time? This is awful. And now I've gotten a bit more accustomed to it. But there was that golden period, Danny. I think you just missed it, sadly. Uh, that said, well, I will say, you know, considering that the entire platform collapsed, uh, Twitter stock price did not. I mean, it, it's down like, what, pennies? I mean, you, what, what does it say that like whole groups of important people on the platform disappear? And it's like 1%. Twitter has a history of breaking, guys. This is not the, even the 6,000th time this has happened. If Twitter's share price was going to drop because it had a product error, the company would have a negative share price by now. But 
instead of going off about Twitter, which we could do for roughly six hours because that's our favorite thing to talk about, <laughs> we have a, a really packed show today. And we're going to start off with something actually in-house. If you have not been on the TC website this week, you may have missed it, but we put out something called the TechCrunch list, which has been turning heads and causing my DMs to flood. Danny, first, can you tell us what the TC list is? And then as a, as a second point, please, why is everyone trying to get a hold of us suddenly to get on this list? Yeah, I mean, the TechCrunch list came out of talking with founders. So, I mean, obviously, in the uh, reporting that we do with TechCrunch, we talk to hundreds, if not thousands of founders over the course of a year across the whole staff. And, you know, the most common question I, I, I think I get, and I'm guessing you guys get as well, is like, who do we talk to to fundraise? Like, who leads a first round check? Who actually is going to write a first check into a company? I kind of know that in the back of my head, both as a former VC, as someone who's on equity, as someone who writes regularly in startups, I have a sense in my head of like, these are the folks I would recommend talking to first. Right. But then at some point you realize like, we just don't have data. And so earlier this year, we decided to actually go about and build a list of the first check writers into companies by actually interviewing as many founders as we could. We started about a month ago. We got 1,200 founders to submit data on who wrote their first checks, who led their rounds and, and gave us recommendations. We put that all together with our own kind of editorial resources, our own confidential sourcing. We launched a list of 400 of the most active first check writers in Silicon Valley and 33 other cities around the world. And we have another 600 founders who reached out to us in the last 24 hours. So we have hundreds of more founders to talk to. What's amazing about it is, you know, we, we organized it by vertical. And so our, our hope was to actually help you find whether you're raising a seed or a series A or a series B, you know, who are going to be the first two dozen calls you should make? You know, because when I talk to founders, I hear, you know, we talked to 200 VCs. And if I had just known, you know, these were the 10 who would have done it in the first place anyway, I could have saved months of time. And so right. our hope is, is that the TechCrunch list becomes this resource, you know, whenever you're ready to fundraise, whenever you're getting ready to prep that list of, you know, your first contacts, you know, you reach out to the right people first. And because I think that that's the advantage a lot of people get uh, in accelerators, that's the advantage you get being in networks in Silicon Valley. And I hope that that democratizes it for more founders all around the world. Yeah. And uh, to be super clear, the, the TC list itself, the product is uh, in front of the paywall. So even if you're not part of EC, you can go access it and play with it, tinker with it. And I, I have to say, Danny, it's pretty slick. I, I didn't know we could build that internally. I was impressed. Go team. How long did that take? It <laughs> took whatever amount of time you think it took. It's 20x that time. I was, I was thinking glacial period. So maybe, yeah. maybe I was overshooting yeah. it a little bit. Good thing you're a 10x human, Danny. My, my guess <laughs> is it's easier to terraform Mars than it is to launch a spreadsheet on the internet. But uh, ah. nonetheless, it is vetted. It is curated. It was a lot of work for a lot of folks on editorial product and engineering. We're super excited about it. I've already used it once. Tosh, have you played with it yet? Have you gotten to go through and kind of click all the little buttons and do the thing? Yeah, I have. I was, I was really amped when I saw it. I I was joking on Twitter about it when I had a Twitter and that's the last Twitter joke I'll make. But um, I always like say that I think the most interesting stories to tell are underrepresented founders who use networks to get their first check. But it also feels like one of the few things that the seed and series A ecosystem hasn't blogged its way to death. Like you see Medium posts about everything and it still feels like this was a gap. So um, I'll happily gas up Danny and the rest of the TC team. I was amped about it. One thing it reminds me of going back in time is the funded, which was a, a almost like a Yelp for VCs that founders could go through and kind of vet who was a good VC to talk to and so forth. But now we have this kind of on the site and we also have, Danny, this treasure trove of information that you've collected. I'm very curious about the feedback that we got. We got, you know, over a thousand responses, maybe 2000 now. What stood out in the feedback? Did you see a lot of people uh, being more positive than you expected, more negative than you expected? What was inside the data that we can't see that really stood out to you? You know, we oftentimes talk about SaaS companies and they have net promoter scores, right? A really strong NPS shows that your customers love you. 
And I think that the same thing shows up in the TechCrunchList data. There are some VCs that founders just overwhelmingly love. Dozens of folks wrote in. In some cases, people wrote as much as 14 pages to us about how awesome their investors are. And in some cases, those people were running multi-billion dollar unicorn companies. Wow. And so to me, the, the big lesson here is, look, there's a lot of positivity. A lot of folks write checks. But some investors seem to really go the extra mile, really build those relationships with founders. They're really um, responsive. They're quick. They answer questions. They're specific. And it really helps to build that relationship. They have amazing founder MPS scores. I want to ask one more question before we move on to the, the tons of news we have to get through on the show, because there's so much that's going on in the, in the private world. But you did do a, a post that was kind of a distillation of the best people, and you put them on this one, one article. How much pushback have you gotten from people who, who didn't get either onto the list or into the special article that was like, here are the best ones? Because people in VC, as we all know, are pretty um, relationship and um, reputation focused. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, we've gotten maybe 150 emails to get on the list. I've, oh. I've only had two or three people who complain about the, the more reserved list of folks who got a lot of feedback, mostly because that was based off of the quantity and quality of the recommendations we got. got so it. it's a little bit harder to just sort of like, get me on the fucking list. <laughs> but what I will say is, is um, we did get a lot of folks and it, it's very fascinating. I'm, I won't name names because we're trying to keep it a positive experience. But I will say there are certain folks who really just assume they're really, really good. And, ah. you know, they're like, I've worked with dozens and dozens of founders, and we're now up to about 2,000 recommendations. If you haven't gotten a single founder to submit a two-minute survey about how awesome you are and you've supposedly worked with hundreds, I'm not saying what that says. I'm just saying it says something. Yeah, it says a lot, actually. It says, it says a lot. Yeah. You know, it's guilt by omission. Danny has the T. The T is like just Danny's inbox right now. We need to stop the Twitter hacking and just hack Danny because <laughs> how fun would it be to, to just drop the entire dossier of founder comments with names? I mean, that would pro that oh. would be a nuclear bomb on Silicon Valley. That would just explode the gossip machine like in a way that we haven't seen in, in ever, maybe? I a mean, one week, I feel like. <laughs> it's, you can get that and all the crypto scams I get on a normal basis. I was trying to fit in a crypto scam joke at the end of your little, your riff today, but I couldn't quite make it work. Hey, um, I, I, every day, it's another crypto scam. And I will say there are two PR firms that email me like 10 times a day and they can go, go where the sun don't shine. But let me tell you something about big, big dollars, because one of the big stories going on right now is Geo, Reliance Geo. Reliance is, uh, as many of you know, one of the largest companies in India, Mukesh Hambani, one of the richest, if I believe the richest in Asia, who has tens of billions of dollars as a fortune. The big news this week was that Google invested $4.5 into Reliance's Geo platform, which is after a whole spate of, what I want to say, a dozen Western tech companies entering the Indian market, that $4.5 bought only a 7.73% stake because Reliance Geo is worth a lot. So, I mean, this, this was a huge deal, Alex. An enormous deal, but don't don't forget that Facebook put in five point seven billion for a nine point nine nine percent stake. So we've now seen, I think, really for the first time, Facebook and Google putting money into the same business to the tune of just over ten billion dollars. So I think Reliance Geo, just the subsidiary of Reliance itself, is worth about sixty billion at that valuation. I have to do the math again, but an amazingly large deal. And I have a hypothesis about why people are putting so much money into Geo, Reliance Geo. Sorry, I want to run past you guys both. So. Uh, First, I think putting money into this mobile provider is a hedge against China, because if you want to make sure you have massive distribution of your digital service or product, and you're worried about Chinese, the Chinese market, doubling down on India makes pretty good sense. It's a very populous country. There's lots of people there that are now getting online. So that strikes me as the right thing. And then also after Facebook rolled in and bought 10%, I bet everyone was worried about being squeezed out by Big Zuck. 
And so they're maybe buying defensive shares in uh, Reliance Geo. Those are my two guesses. I'm curious what you guys think, but this is so much money so fast. It seemed to snowball almost out of nowhere. So something certainly huge is going on uh, with this business. Yeah, I think my my first read on the situation was that we've been hearing about India's digital revolution for, for so long. And now you finally have a company that is kind of the epitome of that conversation. Geo has become such a thing that is like on Twitter. It's, it's basically become a joke. And I think that's an amazing thing for an India company to be able to do is like, there's no way for you not to sit down and read a profile about them. The way this was phrased in a tweet that I saw actually inside of a TC post was the old joke was, you know, when will India make a Google? And now the, now the question is, when will the U.S. make a geo? And I think that's a, a great way to think about it. I mean, it's an enormous business. And I, I just think it's fascinating to see General Atlantic, Silver Lake, Qualcomm, Intel, Invista all put money into this at a premium, in fact, to what Facebook and Google had to pay for these shares. So there is huge demand. And I'm so curious to see what comes next in this company. I've said, I, I've said you know, I look, I've, I've said this internally quite a bit, so I'll say it externally as well. I really do believe this is the next SoftBank story. I mean, it's a, a story of a telecom of a telecom leader who has huge, huge world changing visions of what, you know, the potential of technology, what the potential for national development is. And now that SoftBank is sort of out of capital, they no longer have their vision fund. These are the people with capital today. There's tens of billions of dollars. It's a huge debt story as well, just like SoftBank. There's actually so many similarities between Mazasan and Mukesh Ambani. Uh, it's kind of uh, uncanny. So I, I just think that this is going to be a story that we're going to hear about for at least the next two, three years. It's extremely exciting. A lot of VCs are getting involved in the Indian market today. And yeah. that's great. I mean, 1.3 billion people digitizing, using mobile services, new apps. What a dynamic, exciting economy. And by the way, that was SoftBank in the positive sense. I know on the show for the last year, it's mostly <laughs> negative SoftBank stories. But Danny was trying to say that in the same it's way that SoftBank... It, it, for now. We will watch the full parabola <laughs> from start to finish on TechCrunch.com. Yes. Stay, stay tuned <laughs> on, on the Geo story. All right. Now let, let's go from the, the super uber, insanely late stage valuations down to something a little bit closer to earth. Can we talk about Udemy, which is looking to raise money at a $3 billion valuation. And I had written this company off, forgotten about it, and moved on with my life. But apparently, EdTech is back, and you've been covering this for TC with a lot of folks lately. So, so what's going on here? First thing, the big mistake people are making is they're they're considering Udemy and Udacity as the same company. They both are similar in that they provide courses, but Udacity has had a much more much more public struggles um, and was even close to shutting down a couple years ago. That's one differentiation. But for those who don't know, Udemy is a short course provider that focuses on adult education, and they are seeking funding at a three billion valuation per Kate Clark of the information and previous equity and TC. The exciting part here is not that EdTech, you know, is raising yet another round or the even the spike of enrollment. Like I'm kind of bored of, bored of that at this point. What um, Darren Shimkus, who is one of the VPs at Udemy, told me, he said, if you have a product where you're not being pulled naturally in a place like Nigeria, Brazil or Bangladesh, it's hard to force that. So Udemy's kind of been taking strategic investors. So to me, seeing this Seeing this um, potential new capital infusion means that Udemy is betting big on another global market. Um, and it's a, it's, I think that adds more color to why EdTech is raising so much. It's not necessarily even needing the capital other than getting a market hold in, in a competitive global landscape. Well, I think, I think we've seen this a lot, right? We've seen this with Duolingo. We've seen this with a lot of language learning apps. That was the story with Duolingo, right? Is that they're expanding their language learning, particularly English training all around the world internationally. We also saw that with a company called Teachable, I think we talked about a, a couple of months ago, which was bought by Hotmart, which focuses on the Portuguese language mark. But I think there's just such an appetite globally for education services. 
you know, oftentimes in a lot of these countries, you don't have as well-developed higher education system. Now that with all the, the drama over visas, the Trump administration in the last week, there's always this question of like, you know, the U.S. has some of the best universities in the world, but like what happens if no one has access to them? So I think there's increasingly this demand for alternative products. Udemy is a great example. And congratulations to them. Well, they haven't, they haven't finished it yet. I mean, the, the rumor is they're going to raise it at a $3 billion valuation. Their last round, Tosh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was $50 million at a $2 billion valuation this year, like in February. So a pre-COVID round, effectively. Yeah. And Alex, this kind of goes on something we've been talking about offline a little bit, which is the best are getting brighter and bigger. And the fact that they raised in February at $2 billion and a jumped evaluation of $1 billion just months later shows that if edtech is getting hot, it might not mean that it's enabling the next wave of edtech startups. It might just mean that it's making the behemoths bigger, so which is kind of, I don't know, which, which, whatever way you read it, it's not as interesting to me because I cover seed, but it, it might be the truth of what we're working with. Well, what we've seen is a kind of a bifurcation of the startup world. I mean, there, there's companies that are private that are, have been accelerated by COVID by a greater demand for their services. And then there's kind of everyone else. And the VCs that Tosh and I have been talking to for a story that's coming out on Saturday, I think, is that the companies that are not catching this kind of tailwind of demand from the pandemic era, for lack of a better phrase, are almost dead in the water. And so we could see a pretty interesting split in the startup market over the next couple of quarters, but certainly EdTech, as we all kind of guessed, is good doing well. Weekly course enrollment at um, Udemy is up like 400% from February through, February through March. So certainly that's the kind of demand curve VCs love to see and put money behind. We will bring this back up when the round closes, if it does. But Guys, we are on Zoom right now. We record these on Zoom speaking called Seedular as we talk. And I don't know about you, but I've been on Zoom half the time since March and I want to cry because I'm really tired of seeing my own dumb face all the time. But the good news is there's some companies out there that are making tools for Zoom to make it a bit more palatable. One of them is Macro, which just raised $4.3 million. But as a segue, did you guys see the Microsoft Teams news from the last week or two about the, uh, the new layout? That, that's put a together? beat that I am always extremely caught up on. Um, that's sarcasm. Something. No, Tosh, did you did you see this Microsoft Teams news? Unfortunately, no. I was stuck on. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm is so last week. Anyways, what, what Microsoft <laughs> Teams did, and boo to you both for not tracking my old beat when I covered Microsoft, is uh, they put a thing in Teams that lets kind of everyone be positioned in like a like seats almost, so you can better see the people that you're talking to. And Macro is a tool that sits on top of Zoom and does something kind of similar. So it kind of changes the Zoom UI, as I understand it, and lets you both minimize the UI but stay on video or position the people in a call in a way that makes it more easy to present and kind of take part. And it raised $4.3 million. Jordan covered the round for us. And I'm curious if we're going to see more companies that are going to be essentially value adds onto the major platforms that we're kind of seeing. Because guys, we all know that Zoom is not as full-featured a consumer product uh, as it might be. Dan, I mean, you're on Zoom more than I want to admit. I mean, what do you think about this type of thing in the market? Well, I, I think there's a huge amount of productivity software that's going to come out in the next couple of years optimizing meetings. I mean, one of the biggest challenges you had was that you, you just didn't have the technology layer to be able to do that with, with in-person meetings. Like if you're doing a whiteboard session mm. uh, for three hours in a company, that's great. It's super productive. Theoretically, it's creative but there's no analytics. There's no way to track this. The stuff doesn't get saved. It's on a whiteboard. And yep. so what's interesting about this remote work existence is that all these ideas we had for, you know, optimizing creativity or productivity, it sounds kind of awful, but it, to me, it's actually kind of uh, enlightening, right? You want to save what you built, you save your whiteboards. Those discussions you had for two hours, you're like, there's 10 good ideas in here, but no one write them, you know, wrote them down. I, I think we're actually going to see those get implemented because now you can have an SDK and an API with Zoom. You can actually integrate with those products 
And um, whether it's Macro, whether there's some others, um, now you don't have to install all these cameras. I mean, if you remember, there was a company, was it called Owl? Uh, do you guys remember? Um, that was trying Owl? to create this. There, there was a camera uh, startup that had a 360 camera that you would put at the center oh, of a table and then it would all dynamically kind of adjust who was talking so you could always be center or, you know, try, what we try to do is broadcast on EC Live. You know, again, I just think there's so many of these products that are going to come out because it's virtual, right? We can actually yeah. track things. We can do analytics in a way that we couldn't before. Yeah, well, we have Macro out this week. We have mm-hmm from uh, last week or the week before. Teams is doing the similar things. And we've seen hardware breakdowns from Sidekick and also Zoom this week. Ron Miller covered some hardware package from Zoom. So certainly we're seeing the upgrades we would hope to see as we all sit around because as we've joked before, we're going to be here for a while. So I'm looking forward to things getting a little bit better because I'm very tired, very tired of Zoom. Anyways, let's move on from the world we're stuck in and talk about a more exciting feature, which is boxing. Because I always wanted to box when I was a kid. My mom wouldn't let me. And apparently now I can do it at my house. And it's like a Peloton thing. What's going on? For any of you that have attended classes at Rumble, it's kind of this in-person boxing class that has a DJ and like flashing lights. It's hype. I've done it. But Lightboxer is Rumble, but in your house or Peloton for boxing. There's a bunch of, bunch of ways you can phrase it. It sells this this install of a punching bag that you can put in your house, it lights up, and then you kind of punch to the different lights. I'm also acting out the punching as we speak. Well, we're recording video it, this week, so it's perfectly time for you to do your little boxing demonstration. So they raised $6 million in funding. And I mean, the, the reason is that it's exciting is that it kind of agrees with what we were talking about last week, which is, sure, you, you could potentially get a boxing setup in your house that's just okay but if this is our life for the future you probably want something a little bit more sleek and if you can afford it why not um similar to peloton it's also doing a hardware sell for around 1300 or 400 and a subscription fee per month for classes so super similar to peloton i would not be surprised if it gets scooped up soon well, we just saw a mirror exit to Lululemon, I think it was, for yeah. $500 million. And we've also seen Peloton's uh, share price, and I'm reaching into my memory here, do quite well recently. And so, it's, I don't know, seeing more investments in similar-ish companies is not a huge surprise. I'm curious, though, about how niche this is. Like, Tosh, I didn't know about Rumble, but I, okay. I have done SoulCycle. I, I've been on stationary bikes. I, I also own a bike, and I also run. So I feel like the Peloton mix of things I kind of get. How many people really want to box at home? Is that is that bigger than I think it is, or is that a more niche market than I mean, it might I mean, be? Talking about SDKs for productivity software, what I would love is for my Gmail to integrate with my Lifeboxer, so that all those emails I get from people complaining about X, Y, and Z, their face just shows up like live, and each time it punches <laughs> it, it automatically archives my Gmail like right there. <laughs> like that's how you would go through your inbox is you just punch the ones you don't like. Look, it's, it's like, like Beat, Beat Saber, Saber, but for Gmail. But for Gmail, there you go. <laughs> Okay, so Lightboxer, if you hear this, please make that integration and we will test it and we will let Danny test it and then we'll see how it goes. I mean, Tosh, <laughs> I, Tosh I like it. I just don't know how big the market Yeah, I think, okay, so two reasons why I'm bullish on it, just to put my investor cap on. Yeah. One was when Peloton filed its S1. I was next to you, Alex, I think. And I think we both were shook by how many people who had bought the Peloton were buying that $30 per month subscription service. I was like, mm -hmm. you already spent over a thousand for this bike. Why do you need to add even more money to your purchase? So what that told me was that it might not be the biggest market, but the people who are in that market are willing to spend big on it. I, I imagine that these are kind of the startups that are getting venture backed, but aren't looking, are probably looking to have a, a smaller exit. I know that's controversial and I hope I'm not speaking for the founders, but I don't think that this is going to be the next Peloton. I think it's going to 
be bought by the Pelotons of the world. I really that, hope I didn't piss anyone off just then, but yeah, that, that feels right. That that feels right. I mean, that's kind of what I was saying with the smaller market point. I don't I don't recall being shook per se at that moment. I don't <laughs> know if I've ever been been shook. Maybe maybe I have. I don't know. But um, you definitely I, were. <laughs> I stand corrected. People love recurring revenue streams, as we've all seen. High margin recurring revenue, which is essentially SaaS, is uh, the thing investors covet the most. So. We'll see what Lightboxer does. I would not be surprised if we saw even a couple more similar companies come up and get funded. This uh, $6 million round as a data point was $2 million from friends and family, and then $4 million led by Will Ventures, which I have actually, I haven't heard of before. Danny, do you know Will Ventures? I, I think it's about like having willpower to punch. I don't know. I, I have never heard of them. <laughs> that gets on equity. We have a rule of not making jokes that are a zero out of 10. They have to be a one out of 10 or better. And Danny has now broken the, the awful joke rule. And we'll do push-ups after the show. Um, but, uh, Guess whose well, face is getting installed in my life boxer? It's, it's, it's light, light boxer, oh, Danny. Oh, damn it. Light, He's light like, I need it to be life. <laughs> All right, actually, now, life boxer actually sounds a lot better. So I'm going to rebrand them. I'm going to change their focus to enterprise productivity. They're going to I would hate pay staff for this for my Gmail integration. Uh, we're just taking over the complete control of the company. We might as well we're have just get, done a, a complete LBO buyout at this point. We're gonna get <laughs> oh we're gonna God. get emails. If if if, if Liveboxer, it's it's uh, Danny.Crichton at TechCrunch.com, not my email. <laughs> All right, uh, we're gonna move on to the story that I'm most excited about this week because one of my personal hobbies is complaining about Chrome on Twitter. This is just one of the things I do about twice a week because I hate Chrome so much, even though I've used it for like a thousand years. Finally, it seems that people are gonna build some Chrome competitors, and one of them raised. $5 million, and it's called The Browser Company, which is a bit of a generic name. But Danny, please tell me that my pain and suffering are at an end. Well, hopefully. I mean, look, look uh, 2020 seems to be the year in which people reinvent things we've had for decades, right? So we had Hay trying to reinvent email, and now we have this uh, tremendously well-named company called The Browser Company, which is a company that's trying to reinvent the browser. It was, it was sort of a quiet fundraise. It sounds like there, it was a seed investment. It's purely product development. So it was led by a coterie of folks, Jeff Wiener, F. Williams, Figma's Dylan Field, Abshay uh, Kathari from Notion, and Jason Warner at GitHub. The, the lead, Joshua Miller, who is an investor at Thrive and seems to be spinning out to build this, is trying to actually rebuild the browser from the ground up. So it does build on top of Chromium, which is sort of the browser engine. So it, it's not a, a complete fresh competitor, which is a little unfortunate. So you still have WebKit with Safari, you still have Chromium with Chrome, and you have Edge with Edge, with IE, or IE's uh, replacement. It's on um, Chrome now. Uh, it's on Chrome It's all now. Chrome now. So the idea here is on top of Chrome, they were going to have a new Chrome, a new user experience that supposedly is going to be better. That's all we know. Uh, I'm, I, is there I'm, more? I'm I, don't, I don't think there's more. I, I, I think it's literally like, here's 5 million bucks. Let's go see what we can do with the browser. And look, I think there's a lot you can do with the browser. Chrome is really built around Google Web Services. If you kind of leave that universe and say, hey, what, what, if, it, what if the browser could integrate with everything else that people actually use? that doesn't crash all the time, like Twitter, for instance, which just always has 100% uptime availability, what would that look like? So I, I think it's an interesting bet, right? And I think it's a classic example of, hey, it's 2020, a lot of things are locked in. Let's go after the incumbents and do something new. My, my two cents was that if I see Figma and Notion on the investor list, that's a good sign. Like they are two hot companies. So the fact that they're backing it makes me take them seriously. And then Danny, to your point, it's like if everyone's home, there is more appetite to, you know, get the quarantine boost of people being down to try new things. Like I even entertained the idea of downloading Notion for a second the other day. And that says volumes if you know anything about me, because I don't optimize my life at all. She so um, I, 
I don't. So, um, that, so that's, yeah, I don't know. I think that's why I was like, all right, this, I, I'm not surprised to see people go after something that had historically not been touched as much. Yeah. Tosh is the only person who has more handwritten notes on her desk in a pile than I do. And that's saying something, but inside the browser market, there's a couple other companies that are doing stuff. Uh, one of which is brave, which I, is a browser that I think is privacy focused, but I haven't really had a chance to play with as much. And then well, there's and privacy focused. And then they also have a, a blockchain component, which is designed to fund content on the internet, right? So they're using this token that as you sort of go around the internet, it pays the content creator some amount of money and tries to beat the advertising economy. And that was a really bold bet. I don't think it's been successful. I mean, I, I think we can kind of declare it, uh, but oh, they are trying. Uh, yeah, they're trying. They're trying. And I, I think it's yeah. bold, right? Again, like they're trying to reinvent the entire internet economy. It's not just a browser. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's also Mighty, which has not launched yet, and I don't have access to, but people are talking about on the tweets. And so between the browser company and Brave and Mighty and Edge now built on Chromium, I think, or they call it Edgium in the Microsoft world, uh, it seems like there's been... <laughs> Look, I don't make up the nicknames. I just, I'm just reporting the news. It's not literally locked. called Edgium. Did I miss this? That I would no, no, actually they, follow. When they took Edge and put it onto Chromium... They start the community started called Edgium. I don't know. If oh, Microsoft oh, got has. it, got it, got it. Frank Shaw I'm will sure send me mean tweets. Microsoft browser, like Microsoft Teams and other inspiring brand names. Microsoft Teams Home Premium Plus Pro. Uh, anyways, it's really cool to see people take on Chrome because I think that the 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 Chrome hegemony has been here for too long, and I'm excited to see what comes next uh, because Google has, in my view, dropped the ball and turned every computer that I own into a laggy mess with its browser. So. That's my take. All right. So last, guys, before we go today is the IPO market. And I know that, Danny, you've been stuck in VC land and Tosh, you cover seeds. This is not really what you guys have been focused on. But have you guys seen how many companies have been going public lately? Because it's been relatively active compared to like the, the, the April, May timeframe. Have you guys felt that in your world? Yeah, I know. I think I've, I felt it. I've, I think a lot of it was because of how much we were told it's going to be a winter at this time that I'm even more observant of anyone doing anything at this point so if you remember we i remember like this even this show we were like craving a nine-figure funding round and we haven't even talked about robin hood's extension this week so obviously there is like this heat up so that's kind of my take right now yeah danny what about you i, I the only thing i've seen is basically you know all these companies are going out so i have seen these companies go out and they all seem to go out at like zero dollars and and they get these advisors like Goldman Sachs who are like, you know, it's gold. Uh, that's worthless. So you should just hand it off to people for free. And then immediately it becomes like a $10,000 per troy ounce. And, you know, there seems to be these pops. And the pops seem to be like, I mean, we used to talk pops of like 50 to 70% and that used to piss people off. Now, from what I can tell, we're getting pops of, what was it, like 300% on day one for some of these companies? You 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 know the data better than I do. Yeah, I think Encino, which is uh, N-C-I-N-O, I think it's pronounced Encino, I'm not going to butcher that, uh, had like 160% pop on its first day, which was a, a, an insane wow. gain. But what we've seen is these companies that are going public are pricing, often raising their range, pricing a dollar to ahead of that range, and still being met with often kind of this insane market demand, which has brought up the idea of like, are IPOs broken, or are just there's two different groups of investors out there. Uh, but I think the takeaway, if I can just condense this down to kind of one small point for us, is that there is appetite in the public markets for growth-oriented shares far beyond what we expected about a quarter ago. And what that means is there could be an enormous exit pathway for not just one or two unicorns, but theoretically, if they had guts for it, maybe a dozen, two dozen. We could see an actual unicorn parade here out in the public markets. We haven't seen the S1s yet. Palantir is, of course, in the offing. We'll see when that happens. I, I am shocked at the amount of demand for unprofitable growth shares at this stage. 
going to ask you, since you covered the 2019 IPO parade so closely, has there been a huge, anything like surprising that you're hearing from VCs that are comparing 2020 and 2019 beyond the obvious? I think it's just a pleasant surprise. I think because if you went back to March when the stock market was, you know, in, in a complete tailspin and everyone was talking about cash extension and taking care of runway and not dying, like, you know, the default position of a startup is dead. You know, that was the focus. And, and to be sitting here watching companies raise their IPO range, price above the range, and then be met with just, uh, is it Robinhood-led demand? I don't know how to explain how some of these companies are pricing. And, and the result, Tosh, is that we're seeing valuations that, to me, what's the play way? Uh, don't, don't fit with the numerical reality of the business. Like, like Lemonade, mm. for example, I thought priced pretty aggressively, and now it's like quadrupled since then. I, I don't fully understand why that's the case. People smarter than me are making bets and that's totally fine. At least at least today, the enthusiasm reminds me of a different era. And that's a surprise during the middle of a pandemic when we had, I think, uh, yet again, 1.3 million people in the United States filing for unemployment last week. So it's, it's, a, strange, it's a strange world. Um, but the good news is that all those people are going to buy Teslas because I'm looking at Tesla's share price, which is exactly 1,500 right now. Remember when we were, uh, equity pot of like 1,000 bucks was crazy? Oh, and, you we, know, we did the a whole thing, shot about that. We did a whole shot about it, and and now uh, you're up to fifteen hundred. So so clearly the markets are are very thirsty, and uh, clearly a lot of unemployed people are going to go straight to their Tesla dealers and buy uh, Model Ys. More more evidence that the markets are fully efficient and are never wrong. Um, and on that note, we have to call <laughs> it Tosh, Danny. Thank you as always for being here. Really appreciate it, and uh, we'll be back Monday morning. See y'all then. <laughs>